You are listening to Learn Out Loud's Biography Podcast. With this series, we will explore the lives of notable people throughout history, whether it be world leaders, political activists, spiritual luminaries, great artists, or everyday people. This podcast will be a showcase for their story. For a complete listing of Learn Out Loud's podcasts, please visit us at www.learnoutloud.com podcast. Thank you for listening. Soon after, the Greeks being assembled at the Isthmus, declared their resolution of joining with Alexander in the war against the Persians, and proclaimed him their general. While he stayed there, many public ministers and philosophers came from all parts to visit him and congratulated him on his election. But contrary to his expectation, Diogenes of Sinope, who was then living at Corinth, thought so little of him that instead of coming to compliment him, he never so much as stirred out of the suburb called the Cranium, where Alexander ran across him lying at full length in the sun. When he saw so much company near him, he raised himself a little, and vouchsafed to look upon Alexander, and when he kindly asked him whether he wanted anything, Yes, said he, I would have you stand from between me and the sun. Alexander was so struck at this answer, and surprised at the greatness of the man, who had taken so little notice of him, that as he went away he told his followers who were laughing at the moroseness of the philosopher that if he were not Alexander he would choose to be Diogenes. His army consisted of about thirty thousand foot and four thousand horse. Aristobulus says he had not a fund of over seventy talents for their pay, nor more than thirty days' provision, if we may believe Durus. However narrow the beginnings of so vast an undertaking might seem to be, yet he would not embark his army until he had informed himself particularly what means his friends had to enable them to follow him, and supplied what they wanted by giving good farms to some, a village to one, and the revenue of some hamlet or harbor town to another, so that at last he had portioned out or engaged almost all the royal property, which giving Perdiccas an occasion to ask him what he would leave himself, answered, My hopes. Your soldiers, replied Perdiccas, will be your partners in those, and refused to accept of the estate he had assigned him. With such vigorous resolutions, and his mind thus disposed, he passed the Hellespont, and at Troy sacrificed to Minerva, and honored the memory of the heroes who were buried there with solemn libations, especially Achilles, whose gravestone he anointed, and, with his friends as the ancient custom is, ran naked about his sepulchre, and crowned it with garlands, declaring how happy he esteemed him in having, while he lived, so faithful a friend, and when he was dead, so famous a poet to proclaim his actions. While he was viewing the rest of the antiquities and curiosities of the place, being told he might see Paris's harp, if he pleased, he said he thought it not worth looking at, but he should be glad to see that of Achilles, to which he used to sing the glories and great actions of brave men. In the meantime, Darius's captains, having collected large forces, were encamped on the further bank of the river Grenicus, and it was necessary to fight, as it were, in the gate of Asia for an entrance into it. And when Parmenio advised him not to attempt anything that day because it was late, he told him that he should disgrace the Hellespont should he fear the Grenicus. And so, without saying more, he immediately took the river with thirteen troops of horse, and advanced against whole showers of darts thrown from the steep opposite side, which was covered with armed multitudes of the enemy's horse and foot, notwithstanding the disadvantage of the ground and the rapidity of the stream, so that the action seemed to have more of frenzy and desperation in it than of prudent conduct. 
However, he persisted obstinately to gain the passage, and at last, with much ado making his way up the banks, which were extremely muddy and slippery, he had instantly to join a mere confused hand-to-hand combat with the enemy before he could draw up his men who were still passing over into any order. For the enemy pressed upon him with loud and warlike outcries, and charging horse against horse with their lances after they'd broken and spent these, they fell into it with their swords. And Alexander, being easily known by his buckler and a large plume of white feathers on each side of his helmet, was attacked on all sides, yet escaped without a wound, though his cuirass was pierced by a javelin in one of the joinings. And Rosacus and Spithridates, two Persian commanders falling upon him at once, he avoided one of them and struck at Rosacus, who had a good cuirass on, with such force that his spear breaking in his hand, he was glad to betake himself to his dagger. While they were thus engaged, Spithridates came up on the other side of him, and raising himself upon his horse, gave him such a blow with his battle-axe on the helmet that he cut off the crest of it, and the helmet was only just so far strong to save him that the edge of the weapon touched the hair of his head. But as he was about to repeat his stroke, Cletus, called the Black Cletus, prevented him by running him through the body with his spear. At the same time Alexander dispatched Rosacus with his sword. While the horse were thus dangerously engaged, the Macedonian phalanx passed the river, and the foot on each side advanced to fight. But the enemy, hardly sustaining the first onset, soon gave ground and fled, all but the mercenary Greeks who, making a stand upon the rising ground, desired quarter, which Alexander, guided rather by passion than judgment, refused to grant, and charging them himself first had his horse, not Bucephalus but another, killed under him and this obstinacy to cut off these experienced, desperate men cost him the lives of more of his own soldiers than all the battle before, besides those who were wounded. The Persians lost in this battle twenty thousand foot and two thousand five hundred horse. On Alexander's side, Aristobulus says there were not over four and thirty missing, of whom nine were foot soldiers. And that the Greeks might participate in the honor of his victory, he sent a portion of the spoils home to them particularly to the Athenians three hundred bucklers, and upon all the rest he ordered this inscription to be set, Alexander the son of Philip, and the Greeks, except the Lacedaemonians, won these from the barbarians who inhabit Asia. All the plate and purple garments and other things of the same kind that he took from the Persians, except a very small quantity which he reserved for himself, he sent as a present to his mother. This battle presently made a great change of affairs, to Alexander's advantage. For Sardis itself, the chief seat of the barbarians' power in the maritime provinces and many other considerable places were surrendered to him. Only Helicarnassus and Miletus stood out, which he took by force together with the territory about them, after which he was a little unsettled in his opinion how to proceed. Sometimes he thought it best to find out Darius as soon as he could, and put all to the hazard of a battle. At another time, he looked upon it as a more prudent course to make an entire reduction of the seacoast, and not to seek the enemy till he had first exercised his power here, and made himself secure of the resources of these provinces. While he was thus deliberating what to do, it happened that a spring of water near the city of Xantus in Lycia, of its own accord, swelled over its banks, and threw up a copper plate upon the margin, in which was engraven in ancient characters that the time would come when the Persian Empire should be destroyed by the Greeks. Encouraged by this incident, he proceeded to reduce the maritime parts of Cilicia and Phoenicia, and passed his army along the sea coasts of Pamphylia with such expedition that many historians have described and extolled it with a height of admiration, 
as if it were no less than a miracle and an extraordinary effort of divine favor that the waves which usually come rolling in violently from the main and hardly ever leave so much as a narrow beach under the steep broken cliffs at any time uncovered should, on a sudden, retire to afford him passage. Menander, in one of his comedies, alludes to this marvel when he says, Was Alexander ever favored more? Each man I wish for meets me at the door, and should I ask for passage through the sea, the sea, I doubt not, would retire for me. Then he subdued the Pisidians who made head against him, and conquered the Phrygians, at whose chief city Gordium, which is said to be the seat of the ancient Midas, he saw the famous chariot fastened with cords made of the rind of the cornel tree, about which the inhabitants had a tradition, that for him who should untie it was reserved the empire of the world. Most authors tell the story of Alexander, finding himself unable to untie the knot, the ends of which were secretly twisted round and folded up within it, cut it asunder with his sword. But Aristolabus tells us it was easy for him to undo it, by only pulling the pin out of the pole to which the yoke was tied, and afterwards drawing off the yoke itself from below. Darius was by this time upon his march from Susa, very confident in the number of his men, which amounted to six hundred thousand. But Alexander was detained in Cilicia by a sickness, which some say he contracted from his fatigues, others from bathing in the river Sidnus, whose waters were exceedingly cold. None of his physicians would venture to give him any remedies. They thought his case so desperate, and were so afraid of the suspicions and ill-will of the Macedonians if they should fail in the cure. Till Philip the Archonanian, seeing how critical his case was, but relying on his own well-known friendship for him, resolved to try the last efforts of his art, and rather hazard his own credit in life than suffer him to perish for want of physic which he confidently administered to him, encouraging him to take it boldly if he desired a speedy recovery in order to prosecute the war. At this very time, Parmenio wrote to Alexander from the camp, bidding him have a care of Philip, as one who was bribed by Darius to kill him with great sums of money and a promise of his daughter in marriage. When he had perused the letter, he put it under his pillow without so much as showing it to any of his most intimate friends, and when Philip came in with the potion, he took it with great cheerfulness and assurance, giving him meantime the letter to read. This was a spectacle well worth being present at, for Alexander's looks were cheerful and open, while the other was full of surprise and alarm at the accusation, appealing to the gods to witness his innocence, sometimes lifting up his hands to heaven, and then throwing himself down by the bedside, and beseeching Alexander to lay aside all fear, and follow his directions without apprehension. For the medicine at first worked so strongly as to drive, as it were, the vital forces into the interior. He lost his speech, and, falling into a swoon, had scarcely any sense or pulse left. However, in a very short time, by Philip's means, his health and strength returned and he showed himself in public to the Macedonians, who were in continual fear and dejection until they saw him abroad again. Darius, in the meantime, marched into Cilicia, at the same time that Alexander advanced into Syria to meet him, and missing one another in the night, they both turned back again. Alexander, greatly pleased with the event, made all the haste he could to fight in the defiles, and Darius to recover his former ground, and draw his army out of so disadvantageous a place for now he began to see his error in engaging himself too far in a country in which the sea, the mountains, and the river Pinarus running through the midst of it would force him to divide his forces, render his horse almost unserviceable, and only cover and support the weakness of the enemy. Fortune was not kinder to Alexander in the choice of the ground, 
then he was careful to improve it to his advantage. For being much inferior in numbers, so far from allowing himself to be outflanked, he stretched his right wing much further out than the left wing of his enemies, and fighting there himself in the very foremost ranks, put the barbarians to flight. In this battle, he was wounded in the thigh, Carus says by Darius, with whom he fought hand to hand. But in the account which he gave Antipater of the battle, though he owns he was wounded in the thigh with a sword, though not dangerously, he does not mention who it was that wounded him. Nothing was wanting to complete this victory, in which he overthrew above a hundred and ten thousand of his enemies, but the taking of the person of Darius, who escaped very narrowly by flight. However, having captured his chariot and his bow, he returned from pursuing him, and found his own men busy in pillaging the barbarians' camp, which, though to disburden themselves they left most of their baggage at Damascus, was exceedingly rich. But Darius's tent, which was full of splendid furniture, and quantities of gold and silver, they reserved for Alexander himself, who, after he'd put off his arms, went to bathe himself, saying, Let us now cleanse ourselves from the toils of war in the bath of Darius. Not so, replied one of his followers, but in Alexander's, rather, for the property of the conquered is, and should be called, the conqueror's. Here, when he beheld the bathing vessels, the water-pots, the pans, and the ointment-boxes, all of gold, curiously wrought, and smelt the fragrant odors with which the whole place was exquisitely perfumed, and from thence passed into a pavilion of great size and height, where the couches and tables and preparations for an entertainment were perfectly magnificent, he turned to those about him and said, This, it seems, is royalty. But as he was going to supper, word was brought him that Darius's mother and wife and two unmarried daughters, being taken among the rest of the prisoners, were all in mourning and sorrow upon the sight of his chariot and bow, imagining him to be dead. After a little, he sent Leonatus to them, to let them know Darius was not dead, and that they need not fear any harm from Alexander, who made war upon him only for domination. But the noblest and most royal part of their usage was that he treated these illustrious prisoners according to their virtue and character, not suffering them to hear or receive or so much as to apprehend anything that was unbecoming so that they seemed lodged in some temple or some holy chambers, where they enjoyed their privacy sacred and uninterrupted rather than in the camp of an enemy. Yet Darius's wife was accounted the most beautiful princess then living, as her husband, the tallest and handsomest man of his time, and the daughters were not unworthy of their parents. In his diet, Alexander was most temperate, as appears, omitting many other circumstances by what he said to Ada, whom he adopted with the title of mother and afterwards created queen of Caria. For when she, out of kindness, sent him every day many curious dishes and sweetmeats, and would have furnished him with some cooks and pastrymen who were thought to have great skill, he told her he wanted none of them. His preceptor, Leonidas, having already given him the best, which were a night march to prepare for breakfast, and a moderate breakfast to create an appetite for supper. Leonidas also, he added, used to open and search the furniture of his chamber and his wardrobe, to see if his mother had left him anything that was delicate or superfluous. He was much less addicted to wine than was generally believed. That which gave people occasion to think so of him was that, when he had nothing else to do, he loved to sit long and talk, rather than drink, and over every cup hold a long conversation. For when his affairs called upon him, he would not be detained, as other generals often were, either by wine or sleep, nuptial solemnities, spectacles, or any other diversion whatsoever. 
a convincing argument of which is that, in the short time he lived, he accomplished so many and so great actions. When he was free from employment, after he was up and had sacrificed to the gods, he used to sit down to breakfast, and then spend the rest of the day in hunting or writing memoirs, giving decisions on some military questions, or reading. In marches that required no great haste, he would practice shooting as he went along, or to mount a chariot and alight from it in full speed. Sometimes, for sport's sake, as his journals tell us, he would hunt foxes and go fowling. When he came in for the evening, after he had bathed and was anointed, he would call for his bakers and chief cooks to know if they had his dinner ready. He never cared to dine till it was pretty late and beginning to be dark, and was wonderfully circumspect at meals, so that everyone who sat with him should be served alike and with proper attention. And his love of talking, as was said before, made him delight to sit long at his wine, and no prince's conversation was ever so agreeable, yet he would at times fall into a temper of ostentation and soldierly boasting, which gave his flatterers a great advantage to ride him, and made his better friends very uneasy. After such an entertainment, he was wont to bathe, and then perhaps he would sleep till noon, and sometimes all day long. He was so very temperate in his eating, that when any rare fish or fruits were sent him, he would distribute them among his friends, and often reserved nothing for himself. His table, however, was always magnificent, the expense of it still increasing with his good fortune till it amounted to ten thousand drachmas a day, to which some he limited it, and beyond this he would suffer none to lay out in any entertainment where he himself was the guest. Among the treasures another booty that was taken from Darius, there was a very precious casket, which, being brought to Alexander for a great rarity, he asked those about him what they thought fittest to be laid up in it, and when they had delivered their various opinions, he told them that he should keep Homer's Iliad in it. Nor did Homer prove an unprofitable companion to him in his expeditions, for after he had become master of Egypt, he determined to found a great and populous city, and give it his own name. And when he had measured and staked out the ground with the advice of the best architects, he chanced one night in his sleep to see a wonderful vision. A gray-headed old man, of a venerable aspect, appeared to stand by him, and pronounced these verses. An island lies where loud the billows roar, Pharos, they call it, on the Egyptian shore. Alexander upon this immediately rose up and went to Pharos, which at the time was an island lying a little above the canobic mouth of the river Nile, though it has now been joined to the mainland by a mole. As soon as he saw the commodious situation of the place, it being a long neck of land, stretching like an isthmus between large lagoons and shallow waters on one side and the sea on the other, the latter at the end of it making a spacious harbor, he said, Homer, besides his other excellences, was a very good architect, and ordered the plan of a city to be drawn out answerable to the place, to do which, for want of chalk, the soil being black, they laid out their lines with flour, taking in a pretty large compass of ground in a semicircular figure, and drawing into the inside of a circumference equal straight lines from each end, thus giving it something of the form of a cloak or cape. While he was pleasing himself with his design, on a sudden, an infinite number of great birds of several kinds, rising like a black cloud out of the river in the lake, came and devoured every morsel of the flower that had been used in setting out the lines, at which omen even Alexander himself was troubled, till the augurs restored his confidence again by telling him it was a sign that the city he was about to build would not only abound in all things within itself, but also be the nurse and feeder of many nations. 
The great battle of all that was fought with Darius was not, as most writers tell us, at Arbila, but at Gogamila, which in their language signifies the camel's house, forasmuch as one of their ancient kings, having escaped the pursuit of his enemies on a swift camel, in gratitude to his beast settled him at this place, with an allowance of certain villages and rents for his maintenance. It came to pass that in the month Bedromian, about the beginning of the Feast of Mysteries at Athens, there was an eclipse of the moon, the eleventh night after which, the two armies being now in view of one another, Darius kept his men in arms, and by torchlight took a general review of them. But Alexander, while his soldiers slept, spent the night before his tent with diviner Aristander, performing certain mysterious ceremonies and sacrificing to the god Fear. In the meanwhile, the oldest of his commanders, and chiefly Parmenio, when they beheld all the plain between Nephates and the Gordian mountains shining with the lights and fires which were made by the barbarians, and heard the uncertain and confused sound of voices out of their camp like the distant roaring of a vast ocean, were so amazed at the thoughts of such a multitude that after a conference among themselves they concluded it an enterprise too difficult and hazardous for them to engage so numerous an enemy in the day, and therefore meeting the king as he came from sacrificing, besought him to attack Darius by night, that the darkness might conceal the danger of the ensuing battle. To this he gave them the celebrated answer, I will not steal a victory which, though some at the time thought it a boyish and inconsiderate speech, as if he played with danger, others regarded as an evidence that he confided in his present condition, and acted on a true judgment of the future, not wishing to leave Darius, in case he were worsted, the pretext of trying his fortune again, which he might suppose himself to have if he could impute his overthrow to the disadvantage of the night, as he did before to the mountains, the narrow passages, and the sea." For while he had such numerous forces and large dominions still remaining, it was not any want of men or arms that could induce him to give up the war, but only the loss of all courage and hope upon the conviction of an undeniable and manifest defeat. After they were gone from him with this answer, he laid himself down in his tent, and slept the rest of the night more soundly than was usual with him, to the astonishment of the commanders. Not only before the battle, but in the height of the danger he showed himself great, and manifested the self-possession of a just foresight and confidence. For the battle for some time fluctuated and was dubious. The left wing, where Parmenio commanded, was so impetuously charged by the Bactrian horse that it was disordered and forced to give ground. At the same time, the Mazaeus had sent a detachment around to fall upon those who guarded the baggage, which so disturbed Parmenio that he sent messengers to acquaint Alexander that the camp and baggage would be all lost, unless he immediately relieved the rear by a considerable reinforcement drawn out of the front. This message being brought him, just as he was giving the signal to those about him for the onset, he bade them tell Parmenio that he must have surely lost the use of his reason, and had forgotten in his alarm that soldiers, if victorious, become masters of their enemy's baggage, and if defeated, instead of taking care of their wealth or their slaves, have nothing more to do but to fight gallantly and die with honor. When he had said this, he put on his helmet, having the rest of his arms on before he came out of his tent, which were a coat of the Sicilian make, girt close about him, and over that a breastpiece of thickly quilted linen, which was taken, among other booty, at the Battle of Issus. The helmet, which was made by Theophilus, though of iron, was so well wrought and polished that it was as bright as the most refined silver. To this was fitted a garget of the same metal, set with precious stones. His sword, which was the weapon he most used in fight, was given him by the king of the Satians, 
and was of an admirable temper and lightness. The belt, which he also wore in all engagements, was of much richer workmanship than the rest of his armor. It was the work of the ancient Helicon, and had been presented to him by the Rhodians as a mark of their respect to him. So long as he was engaged in drawing up his men, or riding about to give orders or directions, or to view them, he spared Bucephalus, who was now growing old, and made use of another horse. But when he was actually to fight, he sent for him again, and as soon as he was mounted, commenced the attack. He made the longest address that day to the Thessalians and other Greeks, who answered him with loud shouts, desiring him to lead them on against the barbarians, upon which he shifted his javelin into his left hand, and with his right hand lifted up towards heaven, besought the gods, as Callisthenes tells us, that if he was of a truth the son of Jupiter, they would be pleased to assist and strengthen the Grecians. At the same time, the augur Aristander, who had a white mantle about him and a crown of gold on his head, rode by and showed them an eagle that soared just over Alexander and directed his flight towards the enemy, which so animated the beholders that after mutual encouragements and exhortations the cavalry charged at full speed and were followed in a mass by the whole phalanx of the foot. But before they could well come to blows with the first ranks, the barbarians shrunk back and were hotly pursued by Alexander, who drove those that fled before him into the middle of the battle, where Darius himself was in person whom he saw from a distance over the foremost ranks, conspicuous in the midst of his lifeguard, a tall and fine-looking man, drawn in a lofty chariot, defended by an abundance of the best cavalry who stood close in order about it, ready to receive the enemy. But Alexander's approach was so terrible, forcing those who gave back upon those yet who maintained their ground, that he beat down and dispersed them almost all. Only a few of the bravest and valiantest opposed the pursuit, who were slain in their king's presence, falling in heaps upon one another, and in the very pangs of death, striving to catch hold of the horses. Darius, now seeing all was lost, that those who were placed in front to defend him were broken and beaten back upon him, that he could not turn or disengage his chariot without great difficulty, the wheels being clogged and entangled among the dead bodies, which lay in such heaps as not only stopped but almost covered the horses and made them rear and grow so unruly that the frightened charioteer could govern them no longer, in this extremity was glad to quit his chariot and his arms, and mounting, it is said, upon a mare that had been taken from her foal, betook himself to flight. This battle being thus over seemed to put a period to the Persian Empire, and Alexander, who was now proclaimed king of Asia, returned thanks to the gods in magnificent sacrifices, and rewarded his friends and followers with great sums of money and places and governments of provinces. From here he marched through the province of Babylon, which immediately submitted to him, and was much surprised at the sight in one place, where fire issues in a continuous stream like a spring of water out of a cleft in the earth and the stream of Naphtha, which, not far from this spot, flows so abundantly as to form a sort of lake. This Naphtha, in other respects resembling bitumen, is so subject to take fire that, before it touches the flame, it will kindle at the very light that surrounds it, and often inflame the intermediate air also. The barbarians, to show the power and nature of it, sprinkled the street that led to the king's lodgings with little drops of it, and when it was almost night, stood at the further end with torches, which, being applied to the moistened places, the first at once taking fire, instantly, as quick as a man could think of it, it caught from one end to another, in such a manner that the whole street was one continuous flame. Alexander, in his own letters, has given us an account of his war with Porus. He says that two armies were separated by the river Hydaspes, 
on whose opposite bank Porus continually kept his elephants in order of battle with their heads towards their enemies to guard the passage. That he, on the other hand, made every day a great noise and clamor in his camp to dissipate the apprehensions of the barbarians, that one stormy dark night he passed the river at a distance from the place where the enemy lay, into a little island with part of his foot and the best of his horse. Here there fell a most violent storm of rain, accompanied with lightning and whirlwinds, and although he saw some of his men burnt and dying with the lightning, he nevertheless quitted the island and made over to the other side. Here, apprehending the multitude of the enemy, and to avoid the shock of their elephants, he divided his forces, and attacked their left wing himself, commanding Canus to fall upon the right, which was performed with good success. By this means both wings being broken, the enemies fell back in their retreat upon the center, and crowded in upon their elephants. There rallying, they fought a hand-to-hand battle, and it was the eighth hour of the day before they were entirely defeated. Almost all the historians agree in relating that Porus was four cubits and a span high, and that was when he was upon his elephant, which was of the largest size, his stature and bulk were so answerable that he appeared to be proportionately mounted as a horseman on his horse. This elephant, during the whole battle, gave many singular proofs of sagacity and of particular care of the king, whom, as long as he was strong and in a condition to fight, he defended with great courage, repelling those who set upon him. And as soon as he perceived them overpowered with his numerous wounds and the multitude of darts that were thrown at him, to prevent his falling off he softly knelt down and began to draw out the darts with his proboscis. When Porus was taken prisoner, and Alexander asked him how he expected to be used, he answered, as a king. And Alexander, accordingly, not only suffered him to govern his own kingdom as satrap under himself, but gave him also the additional territory of various independent tribes whom he subdued. Some little time after the battle with Porus, Bucephalus died, as most of the authorities state, under cure of his wounds, being thirty years old. Alexander was no less concerned at his death than if he had lost an old companion or intimate friend, and built a city, which he named Bucephalia, in memory of him. Aristolabus tells us that Alexander died of a raging fever, having, in a violent thirst, taken a copious draught of wine, upon which he fell into delirium, and died on the thirtieth day of the month Dacius. But the journals give the following record. On the eighteenth day of the month, he slept in the bathing-room on account of his fever. The next day he bathed, and removed into his chamber, and spent his time in playing at dice with the Medius. In the evening he bathed and sacrificed, and ate freely, and had the fever on him through the night. On the twenty-fourth he was much worse, and was carried out of his bed to assist at the sacrifices, and gave order that the general officers should wait within the court, whilst the inferior officers kept watch without doors. On the twenty-fifth he was removed to his palace on the other side of the river, where he slept a little, but his fever did not abate, and when the generals came into his chamber he was speechless, and continued so the following day. The Macedonians, therefore, supposing he was dead, came with great clamors to the gates, and menaced his friends so that they were forced to admit them, and let them all pass through unarmed along by his bedside. The same day Python and Seleucus were dispatched to the temple of Serapis to inquire if they should bring Alexander thither, and were answered that they should not remove him. On the twenty-eighth, in the evening, he died.